Corinthian story, taken from 1 Corinthians 1 and then chapters 12 to 14. I want to tell you the story of one final church, the Corinthian church. And what a great story this is. Uh, they were so full of the Holy Spirit, so richly blessed by God in spiritual gifts and uh, especially in speech and knowledge. I mean, what a great church to end on. Admittedly, there were some factions in the church with uh, people squabbling over favourite leaders and taking one another to court. Uh, it's also true they were tolerating incest, uh, engaging with temple prostitutes and participating in pagan meals with demons. And of course, there was also the drunkenness during communion uh, with the wealthy showing contempt for the poor and uh, some pretty chaotic worship meetings with some people claiming spiritual superiority and others denying the final resurrection and who knows what else but apart from that they were a great church Corinth was a large bustling commercial city on a major trade route in southern Greece it was a major cultural center whose inhabitants were materially prosperous intellectually astute and morally corrupt merchants would arrive there from all over the world to taste her many pleasures there was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and sensual love, with hundreds of sacred prostitutes to help people to engage in her worship. There were also dozens of wine bars and brothels that gave Corinth the reputation of being the sin city of the Roman Empire. In fact, Corinth became a byword for immorality. If you wanted to call someone a moral degenerate, you'd say, oh, you Corinthian. Though for a woman, there was no greater insult. So for some people, going to Corinth was a rite of passage. They went to be Corinthianized. But the Apostle Paul went there to Christianize. He went to Sin City in about 50 AD to make disciples for Christ. And we're told that Paul started by testifying to the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus was the Messiah. And the ruler of the synagogue actually came to believe, along with his whole family. But it seems that the majority of the Jews refused to listen, and they opposed Paul. And so he told them, let your blood be on your own heads. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he did. He started meetings in the house next door. And as a result, many of the Corinthians who heard Paul came to believe and were baptised. So Paul stayed there for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. And it's because the Lord spoke to him in a dream one night, saying, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Keep on speaking, said the Lord. No one will attack you, for there are many in this city who are my people. Now, we don't know how big the church was when Paul left Corinth to take the gospel to other cities. But judging by what we know of the venues or homes that the church would have gathered in, it probably grew to about 100 to 200 people. And the apostle kept in contact with them, hoping to go back one day when he had the opportunity. But while he was away, trouble was brewing. Paul was living in Ephesus at the time, across the Aegean Sea. He'd already written a letter to the Corinthians about sexual immorality. And then he was visited by a group from the church who told him about all the divisions and quarrelling there. And then on top of that, Paul received a letter, more reports about problems in Corinth and asking questions about some of the issues that they were facing. You know, 
Some churches struggled with opposition and persecution because they were so different to the surrounding culture. For the Corinthians, it was the opposite problem. They were struggling to be different to the surrounding culture. In fact, the way the Corinthians were living, you really couldn't tell them apart from their pagan, promiscuous, idolatrous neighbours. Now, of course, we have to understand the church was no more than, what, four years old? Most of them were recent converts. They hadn't grown up in a Christian home. But nevertheless, Paul had spent a year and a half teaching them, pouring himself into them like a father instructing his children. So just imagine the anguish he must have felt when he heard these reports of division, lawsuits, incest, prostitutes, idolatry, drunkenness, heresy, and so on. I mean, you can just imagine the emotions he must have felt as he sat down to write another letter in response. I mean, what would you have written? I don't think I would have held back. You know, what are you thinking? But you know what Paul wrote? This is how he began his letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. He starts by saying, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be his holy people. Grace to you, he says. And he follows that with this. He's, a quote, he says, I always thank my God for you. What? Hang on, Paul. Divisions, lawsuits, incest, remember? Yep, he says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I mean, wow. What is that? Well, that is grace. You see, that's how Paul related to his churches and how he wants us to relate to one another, with grace. The reason why Paul could say in all sincerity, he could say, I always thank my God for you, was because he wasn't judging them by their performance, but by their position in Christ. He says it's because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. That's why he could give thanks, because of the grace of God in their lives. In spite of their waywardness, he says they had been sanctified made holy in God's sight, right? They didn't do anything to make themselves holy. It's God who makes us holy, who washes us clean through the blood of Christ and calls us his own. And even if we stray from God's desire for our lives, we'll always be his, his holy ones. And that is grace. What's more, the Corinthians have been blessed, enriched in every way, says Paul, as we all have, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that was certainly evident in the Corinthian church because of the abundance of spiritual gifts on display. But it wasn't a sign of their maturity, right? They were gifts of God's grace. But God will mature us. He will perfect us because he's totally committed to his people. As Paul says to the Corinthians, he will keep you firm to the end, right? He won't let you fall away. Right? We might be guilty of all kinds of things, but as Paul says to the Corinthians, he will make you blameless 
on the day when Christ returns. I mean, how could Paul say that when the church has all these faults and failings? Because, he says, God is faithful. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful. He who brought us into fellowship with his son Jesus will keep us to the end. He will complete the work he's begun in us. You see, that is grace. It's all grace. And that is why Paul could give thanks for the Corinthians. It's why we can give thanks for one another, because we are all recipients of his grace. No matter how mature or immature we are, how spiritual or unspiritual, how sinful or saintly we are, right? None of us have earned our way into God's favour and affection. We're all his dearly loved children, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's all of his grace, right? It's what it means to be a Christian, to be fully known and yet truly loved. Think about that. To be fully known yet truly loved. And the Apostle Paul knew all the gory details about the, Christian, the Corinthians' behaviour, and yet he truly loved them as God loved them. And it's because he loved and cared for them that Paul very patiently addresses every single one of their issues and questions, applying the gospel to their lives and situations in this very detailed letter. He doesn't ignore their sin or wrong thinking. He very clearly addresses it point by point. But before he talks about what they're doing wrong, he reminds them of what God has done, you see? What God is doing and what God has promised to do. He doesn't lay down the law. Instead, he starts by reminding them of God's grace, of who they are in Christ. Why? Because Paul knows it's God's love that transforms us. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. So before Paul addresses the work that needs to be done in their lives, he starts by giving thanks and reminding them of God's grace. And before I continue with this story, perhaps we could do that right now. Why not pause the video for a moment and ask, how does grace motivate you to live the way that God intends? And how should grace cause you to relate to other believers who may seem immature or worldly? Just take 15 minutes to discuss that in your small group right now. All right, so as we've seen, the Corinthian church had issues. And just a comment here, no church is perfect, right? Because churches are made up of imperfect people. So don't go looking for the perfect church because it doesn't exist. Or at least if it did exist, it would cease to be perfect the moment you joined. Are you with me? So why not join an imperfect church like ours and then serve in every way you can to make it more perfect than it is? Now, admittedly, the Corinthian church seems to have had more issues than most. But we can be very thankful for that. Because what we have in response is Paul's wise counsel and teaching, which is so helpful to us as we seek to address worldliness in our own churches and try to live lives that are pleasing to God in a culture that's really not too dissimilar to the one in Corinth. One of the issues that I'm particularly thankful for in the Corinthian church was their chaotic times of corporate worship, where in chapter 11, Paul says to them, in the following instructions, I've got no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. 
Imagine that. Their meetings were doing more harm than good. But God blessed the Corinthians. Because if, if it wasn't for their awful meetings, we wouldn't know a whole lot about the Lord's Supper in the early church or how uh, spiritual gifts are supposed to operate, both of which play an important role in our church meetings. And thanks to Paul's guidance on the Corinthian chaos, we have at least one picture of what a church gathering should ideally look like. And it's got to be said, it doesn't resemble most church services today, at least not in the West. So for the purpose of this story, I just want to focus on one aspect of their meetings, and that was the exercising of spiritual gifts. Now, remember, this was something they had going for them. As Paul said at the beginning of his letter, you do not lack any spiritual gift. But there was a problem. The divisions that they were experiencing as a church were being further accentuated through their use of spiritual gifts during times of corporate worship. Reading between the lines, it seems that there were some in Corinth who saw certain gifts as a mark of their spiritual superiority, especially the gift of tongues. You know, there were probably a few who were kind of parading this gift in the meetings like they were the spiritual elite. You know, hey, look at us, we're speaking like angels, which left everyone else feeling somewhat inferior. It also meant other gifts weren't being exercised. What's more, there was chaos because with all these people kind of jabbering away in unknown languages or in this spirit language, it meant that no one could understand what was being said. So no one was being edified. Guests thought that they'd walked into a madhouse and no one was thinking about anyone else. So Paul gives them some much needed instruction. First of all, in chapter 12, he talks about the variety of gifts that there are the variety of ministries, the variety of workings. God loves variety, he's saying. It means that no one has your exact gifts because God works differently in you than he does in me. And there's no reason for pride because they've been given to us by God. They're his gifts. So you can forget feeling superior and there's no need to feel inferior. And when it comes to the more supernatural gifts, like uh, divine wisdom and knowledge, uh, gifts of healing and miracles, prophecy, and, and yes, even tongues, right? They're just some of the examples of the different gifts that the Holy Spirit can give to each one of us at any given time or situation. They're not ours to own. They are his to give, just as he determines. And the reason why he gives us these gifts is for the common good, says Paul. It's not for my benefit. It's certainly not so I can show off. It's for the benefit of everyone, the whole body. Just as there is one God who gives us these diverse gifts, it's for the benefit of the one body, a body with diverse parts. And Paul then uses the metaphor of a human body to describe this unity in diversity. A body, he says, has many different members. They all have different functions, but they make up the one body. And all are needed for the body to function, right? They all contribute something different. But we can't all be an eye. I mean, that would be weird. Neither can we just be a hand without a body. I mean, that belongs in a horror movie. Every part is needed. And so like a body, we need one another. We depend on one another. You know, the church body will only grow and flourish if we're all willing to play our part and use all of our various gifts for the benefit of the whole. You see, that's what it means to be a member of the church. 
You have a part to play. So don't dismiss your unique contribution and how God can use you. And don't compare yourself to others who may be more visible. It doesn't mean they're more important or valuable. And don't look down on yourself if you're not as visible. Right? It's God who puts the body together. And often it's the parts of the body you don't see that are indispensable, says Paul. The point is, everyone has something to offer and nobody has everything. The picture that Paul is painting for the Corinthians and for all of us is that the church is a spirit-filled, multi-gifted, interdependent body of people, adults and children, men and women, who are all needed, who all exercise ministry, who all have a part to play in the building up of the church, the body of Christ, so that he will be exalted in us and through us. And so as members of his body, we should eagerly desire spiritual gifts so we can use them for the good of all. And that's what Paul goes on to say in chapter 14, where he seems to be saying, you know, I know how much you love the gift of tongues, but in your corporate meetings, I would much rather you prophesied. I want you to desire all the spiritual gifts, but especially the gift of prophecy. Now, of course, the Apostle Paul had the experience of this himself. It was when he was in Corinth that he had a, that dream in which God spoke to him about having many people in the city. It was that revelation that he received from God that then caused him to remain there another year and a half, which of course benefited the church. That revelation was for him personally. But when we share a revelation with others for their benefit or to help them in some way, that is called prophecy. As Paul says to the Corinthians, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and comfort. But when you speak in tongues, as I know you Corinthians are fond of doing, no one's being built up except yourself because you're speaking to God with your spirit and no one understands except God. So I'm glad that you speak in tongues. I mean, I'd have you all speaking in tongues. It's a gift that I greatly value in my own private communications with God, right? I'll pray with my spirit in tongues as well as praying with my mind. I'll praise God with my spirit, singing in tongues, just like I do in my own language. So I'm not saying stop doing it, says Paul, but rather think about where you're doing it. Because in a corporate gathering, it's important that what you contribute is intelligible so everyone can benefit from it, which is why I'd rather you prophesy. Unless you bring a public tongue and there's someone to interpret it, or you interpret it. But if not, then just keep it between yourself and God. Are you with me, Corinthians? I know how eager you are to have experiences of God, but be just as eager to build up the church, says Paul. And as you do, when unbelievers come among you, they may well experience God's presence. It's when you're all prophesying and they realize you're reading their mail, things you couldn't possibly have known about them, that they'll be convicted and they'll worship God, saying God is in this place. So then, what have we learned here, says Paul to the Corinthians? When you all come together, rather than everyone doing their own thing, or the same thing, different ones of you should be ready to contribute. One of you might bring a song, another a lesson or a, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. As long as no one hogs the floor and it's all done for the building up of the church. Because you see, that is the loving thing to do. 
and love is what this is all about. At the end of the day, it's not how gifted we are that is a sign of our maturity, it's how well we love one another. And that's why right in the middle of everything that Paul says here about spiritual gifts, he stops to write his most famous words about love. How love is patient, love is kind and so on. And I'm sure he'd be very happy about how many times it's been read out in weddings throughout history, but he originally intended it to inform the Corinthians and each one of us about our attitude towards one another as members of Christ's body and to uh, desire spiritual gifts as a means of demonstrating our love for one another. Sure, he says, you might be able to speak in tongues of men and angels, but if it's not with love, it's just noise. You might have amazing prophetic powers and miraculous faith, but without love, they're nothing. You might think you're being very spiritual, you know, giving away all your possessions, even giving up your life, but if you haven't got love, you've gained nothing. Love is the greatest thing of all. All these other things are temporary, but love will last forever. You see, love was the answer to all the Corinthians' issues. Love for God and love for one another. It was love that would heal their divisions. And that's why belonging to a church carries a commitment to love one another. In our attitudes, in our words and deeds, loving others the way that God has loved us. Love is the most important thing. Because love is what this story and all the stories have been about. It's what God's big story is all about because at the very centre of the story is Jesus Christ and he is the very definition of love. God is love. Love comes from God. It was made flesh in Jesus and comes to us by the Holy Spirit. Love is like a fountain coming to us from the Father through the work of his Son and flowing into our hearts by the Holy Spirit and then overflowing from us to others so they too might become dearly loved children of God, fully known yet truly loved. And that is why we're here. So let me conclude the way Paul does at the end of 2 Corinthians. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, evermore. Amen. Here are some discussion questions for your small group. First of all, what did you find particularly helpful in what Paul says about exercising gifts? Secondly, in what ways could you see yourself serving or contributing to the church body? Thirdly, List some of the many ways that love can be demonstrated to one another. And finally, ask the Lord to fill you with his spirit so that you might know more of his love.